Welcome to The Sustainable Life. It's Josh Spodek here with Alan Herrera for a second time. Thank you for coming back. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you, Josh. And let's see, there's so much to cover. After your conversation and your movies have gotten me thinking a lot, and I wanted to come back to a lot of different things. So thank you for sharing. I've also got an agenda of my own. One thing I really want to talk about. So, yeah. Oh, uh, should we do, should we, well, I'll put on the table a couple things. Yeah. And then, and then you, and then we'll pick which, which to start with. So one of the big things is there's a difference between, you described a difference between what the Kogi showed and what you saw behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And I'm very prone to, I have my biases and I want to live with minimal pollution. And so I want to look at them and say, look, we could live like them. But it's not exactly, but I don't want to go on a, um, I don't want my biases to run away from me. There's something also talked about is when you came back, when you're in London or in England, then you have to turn off your senses and sitting becomes uncomfortable in chairs. And it occurred to me that that onslaught, if that's not too strong a word, isn't it doesn't just happen. Each of those, I think that each of those sounds and smells and uh, they come from a person making them. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure that, I mean, I can hear traffic outside my street and that's not just happening. Like birds happen, but there's no bird song anymore mm-hmm. or very little. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to explore that a bit of, because I, I think when people think about, when I talk to people about polluting less, their first thoughts is the things that they're going to lose that they like, like being able to fly around like crazy. Uh, well, they don't think like crazy, but at, at, at a whim, being able to air condition and so forth. But I don't think they think of those things that they would lose that um, I think I also, the way I often think about it is like, we're, it's like we're living kind of in a skid row here where we like the the comfort and convenience that these stuffs gives us, but they don't we we don't recognize the problems, the the unpleasant things around us that we might also lose. And it didn't even occur to me until you mentioned it that sitting on the floor might be more comfortable than sitting on a chair. Because I've tried sleeping on the ground sometimes, not instead of on a bed, still on a mattress pad, my camping mm-hmm. mattress pad. And it's less comfortable, but maybe I just haven't given it enough time. Try These a are a couple things. What, what's that? Try a hammock. They sleep in hammocks there, don't they? Yeah, yeah. men do. And a hammock is, is a wonderful thing. Um, it's interesting because we actually have to learn how to sleep in a hammock because um, we think of hammocks as banana shape. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. And if, if you lie in a banana shape, you probably wake up with backache. It's pretty uncomfortable. Uh-huh. And uh, but the way you sleep in a hammock is actually diagonally across it, and that holds your body perfectly flat. And that is, I think, the most supremely comfortable way to be. Did you know this before you went there, or did you learn this? No, before? I had to learn that. Another thing that we we when we there's so many things outside of our experience hmm. that I think are natural that people have learned over you know 300,000 years of, of humanity that we've lost and um, what, what's your agenda? My agenda. Is- oh, oh, wait, I got to put, I got to put a couple more things on. Yeah. I also heard you speak about how the Kogi in London saw things that were outside of their world. And so the communication is difficult. 
And then um, also as a guest, we had Rodrigo on. And I wonder if you've heard from him. So those are okay. So those are my things. Yeah, he, he he thought it was a great conversation. He sent me a copy of it. It was lovely. Great. Um, and uh, yes, the the thing that totally blew me away when Akogi came to London to present our project um, was that he looked at uh, Westminster, Westminster Hall, the seat of Parliament, and said, "What's it made of?" And that was such a unthinkable question to me that it took me a while to realize that he had never seen a wall built of stone blocks and mortar in his life and had no idea that such a thing existed. Now, he, to, before get, reaching there, he had been down from the mountain. He'd been in, in, in um, he'd flown. He'd been with indigenous people in other parts of the Americas, but he had never seen such a building. Mm -hmm. European medieval stone buildings, which we take completely for granted in Europe, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, were absolutely outside his comprehension. So his first assumption was that this was a cement structure with a pattern inscribed on the cement. Because he'd seen lots of cement. That's, a, that's the only thing he'd seen of that size and scale and, and, and hardness. That's right, including the cathedral in Santa Marta, you know. Of course, he'd seen buildings made of cement, but a cut stone mortared together building, mm -hmm. something outside his experience completely. And so my read is that you're, there's his processing of that, but then there's your processing of what does that mean if he doesn't recognize that? What we I imagine you were taking for granted he understood things that you take for granted. Exactly. Exactly. But you can't do that. No. <laughs> or if you do that, you're going to miss things. And there's this marvelous moment uh, in that presentation I made where I show him, I take him on a trip on the Thames and there's Tower Bridge in the background behind him and we're going um, on the river. And I say, look, to him, the structure of Tower Bridge is completely incomprehensible. It's a structure that says something, that communicates something, and he doesn't know what it is. Mm -hmm. And underneath Tar Bridge is the river, which is communicating too. And the Kohi are used to reading the communications of water, but it means nothing to me. So we have these two different worlds. Oh, man. <laughs> and so there's this experiment. The, the, I'm thinking of these experiments going on, or not experiments, but like demonstrations of... Rodrigo going to observe them changing the land mm -hmm. or restoring. And on a certain level, no, I was going to, I was about to say on a certain level, there's what's happening and, and people can see the objective of what's happening, but everything's going to be different. I mean, before they plant, they sit and think for some time. That's part of the process for them. It's an essential part of the process. Yes. And and this They're is part, one of the re one of the things that makes their comprehension of the world so incomprehensible to us is that we do not understand a meaningful relationship with the seed being established by thinking about it. They do. So you've processed this. I mean, I, I know that as I sleep at night or as I fall asleep for the next few nights, I'm going to be like, what does that mean? What's the, but you've thought about it more. 
Do you mind sharing? What, well, I've lived with it quite a bit. Yeah. What What's come out of this? Um, well, and then this is really what I wanted to talk about with you, um, because I, I want to talk about this project and its significance and what actually is taking place in it. Because we, I've already introduced this business that knowledge that doesn't come to us in the right way through the right authorities, we throw away. Mm-hmm. This happens over and over again. It's happened over and over again through our history. And right at the moment, we have an enormous body of knowledge that indigenous people have about how to take care of the world, which doesn't come to us through academic channels. Mm-hmm. And so we throw it away. We don't pay any attention to it. It doesn't enter into our academic or our political worlds. So we dismiss it. And there's at the very, at this very moment, there is a great complaint being raised by indigenous people about the upcoming COP conference because they've been given no place in it. And yet its function is to discuss how to learn to protect nature. We know that now 80% of all species only exist in indigenous territory. We've killed off those species in our own territory without meaning to, without intending to, generally speaking, out of sheer ignorance and incompetence because we do not know how to look after this planet and the indigenous do. So the whole project of the Kogi, the function of their existence in their own minds is to guide us to learn, to understand how to look after nature because their survival and ours depends on that process. If we don't learn from the indigenous people, and this is what the Kogi are trying to do, we're writing our own death warrants and theirs. So the whole of the project that I'm involved with and heavily devoted to now um, through the Tyrona Heritage Trust is to mount this teaching demonstration, this educational process, which they are in charge of, of teaching us how to look after the world. Um, and the reason I want to raise it here is precisely the reason you've given of your extensive range of contacts, because this is going to cost, it's not going to cost a fortune, but over three years, it's going to cost a half a million dollars. And we don't have it. And it's really rather important to put it mildly. So I want to mention that and bring it forward to people because it matters. As far as the business of what is it that is actually taking place when the Kogi are looking at nature and dealing with nature, their whole relationship with the world is totally different from ours, above all because they perceive the world as the superficial trace of a universal conscious mind. Let me say that back. Uh, the, the world, the physical world, the actual structure of reality that you see and feel, all the sensory stuff mm-hmm. is simply a surface, a projection of a cosmic mind. A cosmic mind. So it's the projection of a cosmic mind. So it's That's vaguely... A luna is the mind inside nature. Now, it's, it's hard for me not to think Plato at this stage. Why not? So it's something like that. It's something like that. Yes. Okay. There is thought in the world. 
And that's what Plato is talking about, yes. Okay. And that is how, at a basic level, everything in the world is connected. It is connected at a thought level. That's a level in which we participate. We are part of the world, not just as physical beings, but we are part of the world as beings of thought. We have consciousness. Mm -hmm. We, And consciousness isn't just knowing what's going on around you. It's a level of connection with what's going on around you, which is deeper than knowledge, really. It's who we are and what the world is that we live in. And so when the Kogi are going to plant things, they are very, very conscious of the significance of establishing a careful thought process of connection with what they're doing. Um, it's not, in my opinion, it is not meditation. Meditation involves emptying your mind. Um, it involves kind of nullifying your consciousness, just being out of it. Um, I've a little experience of meditation, particularly in Japan in the monastery that I was in. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something different. This is thoughtfulness, mindfulness, you might call it. It is every kogi is taught at the end of the day to think about the coming day, what's going to happen next, and to go through what they're going to have to do, to think it through, to imagine it, to participate in it mentally before they participate in it physically. Mm. And this is also an agricultural process. Before you can work with the land and with the plants and with the seeds, you have to think it through. And you th- and the, you don't, that's not limited privately to your own interior being. The process of thinking it through, they firmly believe, mm-hmm. is a process that takes place both outside your physical body and inside it. The world around you knows what you are thinking, which is a strange idea for us. I mean, I think that our consciousness would seem to be a manifest, uh, one manifestation of this universal consciousness, if I don't sound too woo-woo. It's a kind of part, it's, it's a manifestation, partly. Our bodies are manifestations, but also participation, because we're actually able to make choices inside our minds. Mm-hmm. We don't actually know where our minds are. That's a rather difficult thing. Where Where is your mind? Mm-hmm. Um, but whatever that is, you are uh, within it making choices. You are being selective. You are doing stuff. It's not simply a mechanical process. So this is, I'm going to give you my takeaway of, for one thing, what I see them doing, and this is from very, you know, Images of images of images. Like, I'm very far removed. But, you know, I, I once came across some information. Some, someone found that when a culture, when you go from um, a hunter-gatherer culture to pastoral, pastoral to modern world, the drop in awareness of nature is precipitous. It's huge. And, but what, to me, the awareness of nature is, is what I call science. And I, what you're describing to me sounds like science. 
And I say this as a PhD in physics. I mean, I was, I was, I'm still in the academy. I mean, I teach at NYU. And we talk about writing papers. Like that's what, writing papers, running experiments, that's science. But interacting with the world is too. I think I'm doing as much science today when I'm, when I'm learning like what plants around me are edible. And there's not a whole lot in Manhattan. There used to be a lot more. And so this to me feels like, it feels like advanced science. It is. They, 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 they insist it is. They insist that they are scientists and that's why they want to deal with our scientists because they believe that there is a level of communication between people who have this wish to learn about the world they're in uh, that they share. Yeah. And it's applied science in the sense of help making the world fertile and abundant and, and verdant and as opposed to yeah. just figuring out um, interesting information. I mean, there's a, a certain beauty to science. I mean, I don't know if you know much Richard Feynman, but yes, I mean, he he's an entertaining person, <laughs> entertaining, and his his pursuit of science is is just joy and discovery, and he just loves it. Exactly. Yeah. And I, as long as I loved it, that's as long as I stayed in science. But then it became less so, uh, and there were other things too. But and and I I will never take away from someone who just wants to learn about the world. I think there's an art to science. Uh, there's a, a, an aesthetic beauty to it. Yes. In fact, that's one of our definitions of the dif of difference between good science and bad science is that aesthetic quality. You have the same thing in mathematics. Yeah. And so I'm always happy to have that happen. But also I want it applied in the sense of making the world more livable, improving, increasing Earth's ability to sustain life, not decreasing it. Yes. Um it's wonderfully tricky, the notion of sustaining life, because, of course, we we think about that within a false context of desired immortality. We're not good at dealing with the fact that all life is mortal, mm -hmm. which actually has some impact on the notion of sustainability. <laughs> yes. And also, I'm gonna, another view I have of this, again looking from the outside, very far removed. But have you? there's a movie called The Great Dance. I wonder if you've heard of it or seen it. It's it's by the people who did My Octopus Teacher, which I haven't seen. A wonderful thing. I love that. Yes. It stopped my wife from eating octopus, by the way. I never ate it, but she, she loved octopus. Now she cannot possibly eat an octopus. And they did a movie of the San Bushmen in the, in the Kalahari Desert um, hunting. And when they hunt, they become the animal that they're hunting. Like you can see them like jumping around in the way that the animal that they're hunting jumps around. And one part of it shows this one guy, this persistence hunting. You know, humans can run longer yeah. than most other yeah. animals. And so they just yeah. hunt, they just pursue and pursue and pursue and pursue. Yeah. At the end scene, not end scene, but this one scene where the animal is. Surrenders. Yeah, it just looks, I mean, the look on the face of this animal is like, please end it. Yes, yes. And, and that's, that's also, of course, an identification happening between the hunter and the hunted. That's what, that's what I'm seeing here of the hunting. And I feel like you're describing, what you're describing is a pest, uh, is a agricultural instantiation of the same sort of connection with nature, yes. connection with what, yes. because we're going to eat the plants too. Yes, 
Or not all the plants. Some of the plants are going to be not non-edible plants, but some of the plants will have opinions about that. Yes. Yeah. Are we going to we're going to set some of them on fire? Yeah. And cook with and yeah. That's why I was questioning. You know, saying there is this. We need to be careful about what we talk about sustainability, we, because what we want to do is privilege some parts of the natural world as being. Um, uh, we would really like them to live forever, whereas other parts are there to be sacrificed, consumed, live, die, go through that process. But we belong to a section we would really quite like not to die. And this humble humility to nature is, in my experience, look, I, I'm far from a humble person, and uh, but I'm learning a bit. And the more humble I become to nature, the better my life becomes. Lovely. By the values that I feel like the most universal values around of of living that live and yeah i find all this i mean i in a way i think that the kogi um have been happy to work with me because i'm as far removed from their relationship to nature as a human being can possibly be um i come out of an urban ancestry that i i, I can trace my family back certainly to a city two and a half thousand years ago. We have a continuous family history of narrative and names mm -hmm. that go back to about five, 600 BC. Uh -huh. um, and the family goes back before that, but not as far as I'm aware in an urban context. But that's a long time of urban living. And uh, my knowledge of nature is... Um, as little as a human beings can be. Uh, and uh, once uh, I came home and said to the family, I'm terribly worried. I think there's some virus attacking everything in the front garden because it's all sort of going brown and dying. And they sat me down and explained about autumn. <laughs> um, three months after that, the BBC asked me to write and present a major series on American television about, it was PBS as well as BBC, um, about the natural history of um, the conquest of America. Mm -hmm. They couldn't have picked a more inappropriate person. I loved doing it. It was wonderful. I learned a great deal, but I know nothing. Take me out into the jungle and I look around and I can barely distinguish one plant from another. I'm the least not only least capable, but also actually least interested person you're going to find. I have no interest in the taxonomy of the natural world. What I'm interested in is what's going on in these guys' heads. That's what, to me, is the great treasure. Because they have a form of understanding that we've destroyed over most of the planet, but which was once pretty much universal. And I find that really exciting. Yeah, it's, I mean, I'm, I think of to what extent I have something similar because I I really don't want to, I, I want to keep living where I live and help us retain some of that. I mean, can we have the best of both worlds? Can we live, um, I, there's a lot of things, that, like I love going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and seeing, well, I, actually, the Met is actually, most of that is from before pollution. But 
I don't want to let my biases run away from me, but I, how much can we restore from what we've lost? And how much will that be? I think for a lot of people today, including myself up until recently, and, and maybe in many ways still, we feel like, what are we going to lose? We feel like, but all this progress was for, was, was progress, more good. But how much of it wasn't? How much of it, how much have we lost that we don't know that we're, that we've, that we're missing? I can't remember. Did I tell you what happened after I came back from my first family trip to be with the Goggy and live with the Goggy and back with my children? How long was that time living with them? About six weeks. Okay. And it was school holiday, summer holiday, um, no winter holiday. And when we came back, um, my youngest child, um, who was, uh, was about 11 years old, made a presentation in her class about what she'd experienced and what she'd been taught by the Kogi. Oh, she was there. How many, how much of your family was there? You? My, myself, my wife, my two daughters. Okay. And she was talking about their, their constant reiteration of the need for us to stop taking so much out of the planet at the difficulties and dangers of industrial civilization. And one of her classmates said, but you can't expect my mother to give up her refrigerator just to save the world, which was spot on. That's exactly the issue you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. And unplugging my fridge was one of the best. I mean, when most people think, including myself, if, if I have a casserole that it's going to be leftovers, if I let it sit in the sun, it's going to go bad. If I put it in the fridge, it'll keep it fresh. Okay, one fridge, one dish will keep it fresh. But refrigeration in general leads to buying things that, you know, frozen pizzas and things that, and leads to longer and longer supply chains. So that food becomes less fresh. Refrigeration systemically makes food less fresh, less local, less delicious, less healthy. Also, refrigeration isn't the only way of keeping food fresh, but we've forgotten all the rest. I mean, after all, I'm significantly older than you. So I was born uh, at a time when hardly anybody in Britain had a refrigerator. Mm -hmm. But somehow they all survived. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not so healthy. We don't eat so healthy today. We're very unhealthy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And so it... I'm going to say some, I'm going to say the same thing in two different ways. The first way is, uh, the, when someone's addicted to something, there's a pleasure attached to that addiction that, and, and it usually comes in a brief jolt, like a jolt of energy or a jolt of euphoria or a jolt of, uh, feeling like a winner if you're gambling. But because it, the rest of your life has less of that. So gamblers feel like they're winners when they're actually losers. Meth users feel like they have lots of energy when most of the life, their lives, they have less energy. So when we're addicted to something, we get less of what we think we get more of. Hmm. So when we're addicted to comfort and convenience that pollution brings, we actually have less comfort, less convenience. We're running around like crazy. We don't have the kind of comfort that we like to think we have. And I was, I was saying to you last time, the only reason we think we have that degree of comfort is because we've learned to switch off the sense of discomfort that constantly yeah. surrounds us. Yeah, cause we're just thinking of the next hit. We're, and yeah. So here's the other way of putting it. 
you tell me what you think you're going to lose when you get off an addiction, and I'll tell you what you're going to get more of. Mm-hmm. So you think you're going to lose comfort and convenience, you're actually going to get more of it. You think you're going to lose connection with family, you're going to get more of it. Well, the Coggy, who are aware of this as an issue, of course, keep saying, we're not saying you have to change your lives totally. We're not saying that you have to stop in living as you live. What we're saying is use less. You overtake. You take too much. You keep going too far. Mm. Pull back. It's not either or. It's use less. Yeah, it's one of the things that I don't want to overgeneralize among different places, but I feel like a lot of indigenous cultures have some sort of sense of never take the last piece of fruit, never take the last of something. Yeah. And we seem to be like, use it all, get every last drop until you can't possibly get any more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we, we don't really have a concept of enough, do we? Yeah. It's like we have this concept of when, when we hit a limit, we'll figure out how to get past it. When we, when the problem arises, then we'll solve it. When we run out, then we'll figure out how to substitute. I was just looking today at the CEOs whose companies are giving them bonuses, annual bonuses of multi-million dollars. And you think, well, what's it for? What can you do with that? Why would anybody want it? I had a guest on the show who answered that. He gave, he, he observed something that, that answers that in a way that I'm, I'm still playing around with. So that, you know, the things that are addictive are not like you, you don't get addicted to fresh fruit and vegetables or to uh, singing things that are part of life. And, but there are things that give us like a, jo- a jolt and a joy. Uh, I'm not going to be able to say it as well as he did. But what he pointed out was that wanting power was something that we wanted, but also had checks and balance checks on. And that it gives – he suspects that the idea of getting more power is something that is an addiction that can run – that in other places would be kept in check. But we've lost the guardrails. And so we're addicted to getting more and more and more. We're addicted to getting power. We're addicted to getting authority. We're addicted to getting money. That it's 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 that jolt that you get, and you just want more of it. And you say you get you end up with less and less. I'm at a very early stage in my career in broadcasting. Um, I was making a schools radio program um, uh, about money and wealth, and I went to find one of the richest men in the country. Uh, yeah, um, who was. Um, a man called Roy Thompson, who was a newspaper magnate um, from Canada mm-hmm. and who had become more and more and more wealthy. And I went to his office in, uh, in London, uh, was taken up to his office in a private lift, um, sat in front of his desk where he had a great pile of gold sovereigns on the desk. And once my attention had been fixed on the gold sovereigns. He picked one up and moved them because they were all fused together as a paperweight. Mm-hmm. And that was a demonstration of, you know, wealth. Um, and, uh, 
he was complaining to me about the difficulty of friendship when you're rich. Mm-hmm. And he said, the real problem is that you cannot have a friend who is less rich than you are because the confidence isn't there on your side anymore. Mm-hmm. Why is this person my friend? Right, so no one wants to be his friend either. And he said, I am left with only one friend, Gulbenkian, who is the richest man in England at the moment. And poor Gulbenkian has no friends at all. Well, I think also <laughs> that means Gulbenkian, or I don't know how to say the name, doesn't want to be his friend. If that person is richer than him. That's the point. That's that's what he meant. Yeah. Gulbenkian has no friends at all. And he, he was a wonderfully witty man, this guy, and sharp and intelligent. And that was actually why he was so rich, was because he was cleverer than the people around him. And we enjoyed our conversation. We spent a long, long time talking. Um, I was very young. He was a fully mature and immensely wealthy and powerful man. And he entertained me. Mm-hmm. But that, I thought, was that's, that was a moment I've never forgotten. Poor Gulbenkian has no friends at all. What a thing to be the richest man. Now, how does that look from a Kogi perspective? Or, I mean, could... <laughs> from a Kogi perspective, there are no visual distinctions between uh, wealth and poverty in the Kogi world. Um, they're, very, they're very hard to understand. When we first arrived, a film crew to the Kogi and we started to unpack our possessions and the Kogi just gathered around and stood there watching and saying, so much, so much. Why do you have so much? Why do you want so much? Yeah, that's actually the beginning question of uh, guns, germs, and steel. Mm-hmm. Why do you guys have so much cargo? Yes. And yeah, and in hunter-gather cultures, when the hunters come back, anyone who brags about their hunting is like ridiculed. And I think playfully, but if if they get too far, it's like they they get shunned. Mm. We don't we elevate. It's crazy. Yeah, or antisocial. I, I guess I, I would say. Uh, and uh, yes, the social bit is what's really important. I mean, yes, I talked about coming out of a. Uh, an urban culture, an ancient urban culture. And this ancient urban culture, at a very early stage, um, about 1500, no, more, two, more than 2000 BC, um, developed money, mm-hmm. commerce, exchange. And not, not money as coinage, but the, but exchange and that ex- prices. Prices were established in ancient Sumeria. When the Spanish arrived in South America and Central America, they found themselves in a advanced civilization with cities of some cities of hundreds of thousands of people, which operated without currency and without prices. Obviously, they needed exchange. Obviously, they had long range exchange. Um, commodities, food, fabrics, and so on were being moved around all the time, but without prices. Prices are an interesting problem because they give us a way of thinking about things, which is 
quite unhelpful and destroys a sense of community. Yeah. I got to share a story from last night, or it goes back a bit. So part of disconnecting from the grid means it gets dark at night here. And uh, sometimes I don't want to use, I don't have power for lights. So that led to me going outside more and it led to me volunteering a bunch. And the way that I volunteer is that there's a bunch of stores around here that throw out stuff at the end of the day. And someone before me, actually a former student of mine, coincidentally, I didn't know this until we discovered our common past. She started a community fridge and a community cupboard where people can drop off stuff. And there's a whole bunch of us that volunteered to different places, different nights, and we pick up food that was going to be thrown away. Perfectly good stuff. They just got to, the system is broken in this way that they have to get the new stuff in, they have to get rid of the old stuff. So I take it to the community fridge and people can get it for free. And because I'm, for various reasons, there's another community fridge that I'm starting to drop off at that one too. Now, by the way, a lot of people say, Josh, I don't have time to do those things. Like you, I don't have time to do those sustainable things. They see the correlation, but not the, they got the causation backward. It's not that because I have time, I do these things. Because I do these things, I have time in a way that makes sense when you get it. You're nodding like, yes. yes. And so, all right, first of all, at the fridge that I've been dropping off at, I have become, like I always drop off at the same time because of the arrangement with the stores. And so there's a group of people that's always there and they are so, the, the gratitude that they give me is, is like so heartwarming. And a couple of them got together and they bought me a gift certificate for a restaurant. And I'm like, I'm bringing you food because you are needy. Yes. And I'm not saying we got into a full-on argument, but they, they were like, accept this. And I'm like, okay, I'll take it and I will have a good time. And I was like, oh, let me take you to the restaurant. And they're like, no, 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 take someone else. I'm like, how's this happening? Yes. Yes. And then, okay, so the new one is this fridge and it's outside uh, a boxing gym. And so I drop off there and I'm thinking I'm dropping off a normal amount because I'm used to getting these big loads. And it's like the biggest load. So the guy who owns the boxing gym who also set up that fridge comes out and he's like, come in, I'm going to give you a boxing lesson. I'm like, I can't right now. He's like, well, come in sometime. And I'll give you a boxing lesson. I'm like, great. I'm like, I didn't pay for this food. I'm just bringing it. And then that was Tuesday. So today's Friday. Yesterday, uh, I went and dropped off again. The owner wasn't there, but some other guy was there. And he was like, I'll give you a free lesson. I'm like, people are like, they're like giving me free stuff and all I, I'm bringing stuff that I didn't pay for. And in fact, one of the rules for volunteering. No, I, I think you're missing something there because what they're dealing with, they feel the need for an exchange. Um, that the giving and receiving is a normal human process. And that society that I described in America when the Spanish arrived is a society which depended entirely on the moral obligation of exchange. And that was how it all functioned. So, yes, people want to give you something yeah. back because that makes the relationship of you giving them something valid. And it's the relationship of giving and taking, giving and taking, in a world without money, exactly what you're describing, that is actually a way for human beings to relate to each other, for society to function in a way which is, let's just say, harmless. I would say heartwarming. I mean, that's the feeling I get. It's just like, of course, I want to do it more. Yeah. And then, and then I'm just going to get more boxing lessons. 
Yeah, okay. Um, but certainly, you know, walking around the Sierra, um, and you're walking around the Sierra all the time if you're living there. You never stay in one place for any length of time. You're carrying stuff to exchange. And it's important. You arrive somewhere, you have to give, and you have to receive. Often what I'm giving are things that I don't particularly want to be carrying, like sacks of dead fish, (laughs) (laughs) which are very welcome, received with enthusiasm, that are a pain in the neck. But it's the process of exchange, which makes you a human being. This is what socialization is. Now, can we go back to the I want what you just said I want to put that in the framework of of him not see, him for the first time seeing a mortar and stone building. Yeah. And so for someone who's not who's hearing for the first time like what I feel like what you're describing here is is a stone building from our perspective of just not thinking well let's put the money in the bank for some future use. The exchange, the giving, the um, being human, that's not part of our reality, many of us. No. It feels like, wait a minute, but that doesn't, I got to put the the kid through college and I got to pay the mortgage and it doesn't, have you unpacked? Because we live in a world where everything has a price. Mm -hmm. And what you're describing with your, with the fridges and other exchanges are things where prices become irrelevant. It's not part of the transaction. Yeah, it's... Yeah, I mean, I left a part out of it. As a volunteer, I get to keep some of the vegetables. Uh-huh. So I'm saving money in this. <laughs> like it's, well, yeah. It's, I mean, everyone's winning all over the place. I mean, I guess you could say that the shareholders of the place that are getting rid of the food, but they somehow decided that that's the best way to do it. But yeah, it's... But they're, get, they're getting rid of it in a way which um, not only doesn't profit them, but also deprives them of participation yeah. in this communal process, which actually impoverishes them in a, in a different way. And that's rather sad. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's part of what leads to, wait, you want my mom to give up the fridge to save the world? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, don't don't get rid of your fridge. Uh, invite other people to take things from it. <laughs> yes. Or don't think of it as giving something away. I mean, it's yes. it's not the end it's of the world. Give, it's not. Yeah. It's that relation, that symbiotic relationship. You live in the world symbiotically. There's a constant exchange of every aspect of your being. The fluids, the air you breathe, the foods you eat, everything that you are engaged in is somehow symbiotically connected to what's around you. And it's possible for human beings, and they they did in America's live for thousands of years like that without ever having prices for things. And so exchange is purely moral. And fun. Yeah, and also satisfies needs, yes. There's a story of some culture, someone in Africa, like someone gave someone a, a, a fruit or something, and then they had to cut it up into, there were 16 people, so they had to cut it into 16 pieces, equal, perfectly equal pieces, so that everyone got their share. And um, it's just, people don't want to have more than everyone else, or, well, I, I guess when they're not- Well, there are social constraints, aren't there? 
Yeah. And the person that takes more than anyone else may find that they are regarded rather oddly by everyone. Yeah. Or although if no one's around, ah, this is the key. If no one's around, then they do want to keep stuff. And that's that indulgent feeling that I think my the guest on my podcast was talking about. But yeah, it's, um, I'm sure that's right. But on the other hand, when I'm talking about a world where both on my side of the Atlantic and on your side of the Atlantic, um, part of the process of dumb exchange, exchange without prices, uh, would be that people would take things to specific pre-designated locations on specific pre-designated dates, leave things there, and then come back a few days later and collect what was left in return with nobody around to see it at all. There's a group here called the Freegans, and they have a several times a year, totally free, free market. Yeah. So I love to play on free market. So yeah, you can bring whatever you bring and take whatever you want. And it's not exactly the same thing as what you described. But it has a relationship to it, yeah. And my favorite part of those things is when when my neighbors get rid of stuff, I'll take stuff out of the out of like the my building has a place downstairs where people can drop stuff. When I drop it off at the free market and I see people taking it, I love when someone takes something I brought really fast. Yeah. Like the faster they take it, I'm like, that was good. I I brought value. Yeah. This is a it's it's a fundamental human response. Um, and actually, it's a more satisfying way to live, isn't it? So, yeah. So the big thing for me is to create a path from where we are now, where that feels terrible for a lot of people. Because you can, and, you know, John Nash showed you can have a you can have an equilibrium where everyone you can see a better place, but no one wants to, no one actually wants to get there. Yeah. So, can I help? Can we help create paths from where we are to there? The direction of uh, travel um, uh, of the world we're in is the opposite one, isn't it? Um, about fifteen years ago, I spent some time with the Shipibo in Peru. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they lived pretty much off grid. Um, uh, it was about a two hour boat journey up the river, uh, branch of the Amazon. Um, and we would have conversations about what they wanted. They knew that change was coming and they were very enthusiastic about change. And uh, I was told what they really wanted. They said to me what they really wanted was electricity. And they looked forward to being assisted in getting electricity. And I tried to explain that electricity may seem very useful, but with electricity comes an electricity bill. And the electricity bill actually has to be paid with money, which you don't have and you're not using. And uh, the, so what's going to happen is that when you get electricity, your sons are going to go upriver to Pucallpa, the city, and there they are going to work. And your daughters will go as well and work to get money to bring back to pay the electricity bill. And the consequence of that will not just be the separation of you from your children physically, but also your children will turn into Peruvians 
How do you feel about that? It was very difficult for them to even hear this. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it's... Um, have you read Confessions of an Economic Hitman? No. Uh, it, that's, it's that on, on the national scale of, of uh, the various Western countries coming in saying, we'll give you electricity. We'll build this dam for you. I mean, we'll loan you the money and then you just have to pay us back. But you'll have such great economic growth that you'll be able to pay us back. And the bigger the loan, the more the people are, are indebted and therefore never able to go back. Yeah. And it effectively, if it effectively, when the U.S. does it, say through Bechtel or Halliburton or whatever it's called now, the taxpayers feel of the U.S. feel like, oh, we've given a grant to this place. We're helping them. The grant, basically, some of it, a, a tiny bit goes to the, the ruling family there and establishes them as the puppets. The, almost all of it goes then to Halliburton, and and yeah. the people just end up being indebted forever. Yes, and he saw his role as an economist to make these rosy projections that he knew were false. And it's it, you can see as a system, it's a very stable system. No, I don't see that. But okay, yeah. well, it. It keeps going. I mean, it feeds off itself it, until we run out of places to dam up. For a short while, for a long time. I mean, look, we, we live in civilizations that are centuries old, many centuries old. But the kind of civilization you're talking about, I don't think is capable of surviving for 150 years. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's what's going on around us. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I have an idea for one step in this path for people who are listening, and I think you'll like it too, is that people think, I want to fly, I want to see Machu Picchu and the Eiffel Tower and things like that. And this is going to sound as unbelievable to them as some of the things we've talked about. But if they, instead of flying to someplace, go camping mm -hmm. for a vacation, or even if they just if they if they want to go in a smaller step and just go do a staycation, go to like a boutique hotel near where they are, but avoid the flying, and then take that money and donate it to Tyrona Trust. That would be a very very welcome thing. Yes, yes, and to it them would be doing some good. Yes, yeah, yes. I think I think everybody would benefit. That'd be wonderful. Actually, not only is it an attractive thing to say, but while you're talking, it occurs to me because I've like many people of my age and um, opportunities have been to pretty much all the places that I would want to see on the tourist bucket list. Mm -hmm. um, and I have to say that in reality, I mean, they say it's better to travel, hopefully, than to arrive. There are very few experiences arrived at at the end of this six, 7,000-mile journey that turn out to be quite as worth the journey mm -hmm. as one hopes. Um, tourism is largely as a process, the art of creating a hypothetical, imaginary, hallucinatory destination, which you want to get to, which probably doesn't quite turn out to be as good as the hallucination that was given you in the first place. 
and at the other end of not not flying overseas, if you, I mean, the past vacations that I've done were bike trips, including camping nearby, and they were the the equal or greater than any experience I've had traveling. And that's I've been in North Korea a couple times. And it's not, it's very easy to say at that point, oh, well, you've been there. So now since you've been there, other people should get to go there too. My point is taking that into account. I mean, I can't change the past, so I can't undo that. But if I could, I would in favor of learning where I am and connecting, restoring. So people, that's one easy step is, although it sounds impossible it sounds like what you want to give my you want me to give my fridge to save the world but to me that sounds like wait you want me to learn how to cook and get fresh local fruits and vegetables instead of um frozen pizzas it's also what you're doing in that process is opening yourself to the place where you are yeah uh, so you are engaging with the place the people what's around you and that actually is a real experience of traveling that is hugely beneficial and enthralling. Um, whereas most modern tourism involves being put into a box, which is never opened. You are transported in the box from one place to another. You are moved from this box into a hotel room box and everything around you is part of the box. And you never actually have an experience. Yeah, it's totally curated. It's exactly, and it's not curated for you. It's curated no, for for the people who are selling it to you. Yeah, yes. And it's not just the box of like being in the physical airplane. It's even when you're outside of it, it's yeah. still not. I mean, your experience is restricted, and one of its features, and one of the ways it's sold to you, is that it's safe. You know, there is the reduction of risk mm -hmm. is part of the whole process of tourism. Yeah, that's one of the, where was it? Every now and then I hear people say, nature is trying to kill you all the time. And that's what we live in. We think of like, I, mean, I certainly was nervous when I was setting up my, my tent last time. Might there be bears? And that's just this fear. Like, I don't think the Kogi look at nature as scary. That was one of the things they had to teach me. That it was abundant, I would guess. When I first went into the Sierra, because I had no experience of this kind of world, I felt that I fully understood the Spanish conquistadores being going through the jungle in full armor. It was actually very scary. Mm -hmm. Full of things that wanted to kill me. Sure of it. Um, and... Uh, after one particularly extraordinary day, in fact, it was a Christmas day, um, where I had been walked a long way for a meeting that was exactly not the meeting that was described to me, but had another purpose entirely, which was preconceived by them, um, and was an amazing thing. And at the end of it, by the time I got back, and it was an area which was so steep and difficult where, that we couldn't carry the equipment on mules because the mules couldn't go there. So it was kind of hard work. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I'm completely shattered. And the Kogi said, so now you have to be restored. So take off your clothes, just wear your pants, nothing else. 
well, effectively a swimming costume, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and come with us. Uh, come with you? Walk through the jungle? The jungle will look after you. Everything will look after you. There's a space for you. Come with us. And I was walked barefoot and undressed through the jungle to a river where there was a natural jacuzzi, a whirlpool swirling around. And I said, you go in there. And I went in and I was, it was recreation, recreation in the real meaning. And I emerged remade. And having learned that there was nothing trying to kill me or even hurt me. And in my whole time there, I never even got a bite. Um, because the Gogi kept saying, no, we can think about where you are and why you're here and what your place is, and then you will fit into it. That's, I'm contrasting with the messages I've had over my life. And that's not, you know, in, in my culture, it's... Yeah, what they were saying was, you don't come as an intruder. Mm. You come as part of the landscape. And they think about that, make sure that's what happens. Yeah, I'm contrasting it with, like, get a good job, get a good house, get a good car, and there you go. Mm. Just nothing about life there. Nothing about uh, interaction. I don't know, it's just kind of status and... Yeah, and it's a kind of, in a sense, it's a kind of colonialism in which the whole planet is something you're colonizing. Everything around you, you're taking control of. Yeah, we, I mean, our culture is colonialist, imperialist, effectively enslaving still. That's, in a way, you can see it as part of the essence of it, yes. That's one of the reasons why what we're doing in this project I've been talking about is so unusual, because it's actually run by the indigenous. And this is a point Rodrigo would have been making to you, the scientists we're working with, that what he finds utterly refreshing is that in his whole knowledge of this kind of work that's been going on with indigenous people and scientists working together, it's the scientists telling the indigenous what to do. Mm-hmm. That's not what this is. We are in their hands. They're running this show. We're not used to behaving like that. It's very refreshing. The first time I met the Kogi, I'm a producer. My job, the uh, producer's only got one job. The job of a producer is to make sure that everybody they have contact with falls in love with the production, with the idea of the production. Uh That's what a producer is for, is to create this groundswell of desire that the production should happen. Mm -hmm. Passion. That's how it is. So when I first meet the Kogi, I go to them as a producer. And then they call me in to this communal house at night. And by the time I get into that house, I've had this powerful sensation that they can read me, that they x-ray me, they CT scan me, 
They see right through me. And I go in there and a voice says, you've come to speak to us, so speak. And I suddenly realize I can't perform my work. I can't make them fall in love with what I brought. I can only nakedly speak. And suddenly this whole burden comes off me. An incredible lightness. I'm no longer trying to be or do anything. I'm simply saying, this is who I am. This is what the offer is. Up to you guys. I'm not going to try and convince you of anything. And if you say go away, and I did say this, if you say no, you will never see me again. And that's fine. It was such a wonderful feeling. I, I, I started saying, I, I don't want to let my biases run away with me. But the, I'm being ever more drawn to indigenous cultures, not to live among them, but to learn from them. And, and, and it, it just seems like we have, we have so much to learn from them. We have so much to experience. Yeah. And the more that I move in that direction, the more A I A lot of this is that they're very perceptive. <laughs> I realize they are very perceptive. Mm-hmm. So it meant that whatever movements I make with my body, Whatever attitudes my hands, my legs, my face adopt, they read everything. They can see. Mm-hmm. We're very bad at seeing, very bad at listening. We project all the time. And they can see. We live, we have so much distraction around us. Like they're not superhuman. They just, <laughs> they care about each other, whereas we care about markets and, and GDPs. Yeah. Oh, that was, uh, caring about each other, that was one of the things that their primary concern with everything that we did from the moment I first arrived was my well-being. So whenever they were considering what we were going to do from moment to moment and day to day, the first question was, is it all right for him? It was that came ahead of any purpose that they had in what we were going to do. And actually, I've never been with a group of people whose care for me was that strong. Yeah, I feel like I'm more used to being assessed for how much money I have, like how much am I going to spend in their store? What you saw you, yes. Yeah, can I help you? Can I help you means what can I get you to buy? Yes, 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 absolutely. And that's incredibly destructive, isn't it? Yes. I remember when we were in uh, uh, in north in in the north of Vietnam. Um, the among visiting the Hmong people, um, and uh, the Hmong people were suddenly being invaded by tourists. And having this extraordinary experience of being visited by people like myself who were 
on average, I would say 20 years beyond the life expectancy of a Hmong. Um, on average, about um, three quarters of a meter taller than a Hmong. Um, so there were there, and there were more of us than the Hmong. Mm-hmm. So their villages were invaded by these armies of t- immensely, gigantically tall, pale, almost indefinitely aged millionaire ghosts. That was what they were experiencing. And the millionaire ghosts wanted to take away something, and they wanted to buy things. Mm-hmm. The Hmong were not producing anything of a surplus to for this exchange to happen. So they began cutting up their clothes and um, dyeing them with um, uh, indigo and stitching them into bags that they could sell to these millionaire ghosts. Mm-hmm. So everybody came away with an indigo bag, which then had to be wrapped in plastic because what the Hmong didn't know how to do was fix the indigo from leaking onto anything it touched. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is how we wreaked havoc among the Hmong people. Yeah, soon there'll be a lovely little Starbucks on the river and we will say, look, we've, we're helping them. Hmm. Look how much we've, we're bringing them to us. Yeah. We're bringing them our culture and now they can enjoy life at last. Yeah. The thing that constantly surprises me about the Kog- Kogi is that they have a thoughtful, proactive attitude towards the invaders. They are not reacting. Um, They're never taken by surprise. They know what's going on and they think about it ahead of time and think about how they should relate to it all the time. And that's one of the things which I think is pretty unusual about them. Uh, Different from us, I would guess that a lot of other places are like that too. I mean, among probably wanted to, ha- they wanted to give them something. Mm-hmm. You guys want something? I want to give you something. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. Oh man, this is going to be another, yet another episode in which I have to listen to it several times and just let it, let it wash over me. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is what I was looking for. And yeah, I hope to continue the conversation. And I do hope people who are listening Consider, strongly consider, next time you're going to fly or next time you're going to buy some big appliance, do the opposite. Get rid of something. Stay where you are. Give the money to Tyrona Trust and you'll probably feel better. Or if you save $1,000, give a mere $999 to Tyrona. Keep the keep the dollar so you, you get some personal benefit by that scale. And I bet that you'll thank yourself. Well, the personal benefit you'll get will be that there is a somewhat better chance that your children and grandchildren will have an existence because we're in the process of wiping it all out. Yeah. Um, I was thinking just as I was coming to this conversation, um, you New York City, close to where you are, is, Manhattan, yeah. uh, is on the sea. And in a few more years, the sea will be on New York City. 
Yeah, I, I'm trying to learn how to talk about what I, the projections that are very clear, and most people I'm learning just don't want to hear it because they hear doom and gloom, and they think, oh, you're just trying to scare me. Hmm. And on the one hand, I don't want to say stuff that people will hear and think, uh oh, and, and you know, back away from. On the other hand, if people don't understand what the issues are. And they think, oh, well, we'll just fix it when it happens. That's not in the cards. And so it's irresponsible not to share it. So I have to figure out how to share it in a way that people believe it and want to hear more as opposed to want to turn off or think that I'm the boy who cried wolf trying to say, no, it's actually worse. Yeah. Well, we're very bad at anticipation, aren't we? I mean, last summer, there were an awful lot of cities which were hotter than they've ever been in their history. Mm -hmm. But now, maybe next year won't be so bad, is what we tend to think. And it's... <laughs> because we're not experiencing it at this moment. And we don't want to or cannot envisage what's coming. Yeah, I also explore that a lot, too, of, of why we do that. What's going on in our heads and our hearts? And why we resist, why we rationalize and justify staying the way we are. And yet when we change, we, we're glad we did and wish we had earlier. Not just any change, but a change in the kind of direction you and I are talking about. Yeah. We resist it. And we really... Did I tell you the quote, the Abraham Lincoln quote? I, I, regular yeah. listeners hear me say it all the time. Abraham Lincoln said the most damaging thing you can do to yourself is to do something that you believe is wrong. Now, not to say, he didn't say own slaves. He didn't say do something that I think is wrong. It's that internal conflict that you can't escape as long as you keep doing something that you believe is wrong. And that internal conflict generates things like guilt and shame and things that as long as we suppress it, we can act as if it's not there, but it doesn't go away. It's not gone. Mm. And, but to face it means the only way to get over it is to stop doing the thing. But in order to stop doing the thing, we have to face these emotions that we really don't want to face that feel bad. And so we tell ourselves, well, in Lincoln's time, they would say things like, oh, well, they're not human. It's okay. They, they we're, we're civilizing them, right? The people who are breaking up the families and raping, is, they're the ones who are saying that the others are un uncivilized. But today we say, I'm powerless. There's nothing I can do. Yes. Therefore, it's not my... And, but so when I tell someone you're powerful, that means all the decisions that they made up until now saying they're powerless, they actually, if they acknowledge that they're powerful, it means that they did those things consciously. And that's very painful. I think there's, a, there's another bit which people find it hard to take on board, but which is very important, which is that if you think about these kind of actions, actions that have, are supposed to affect something on a grand scale, uh, and you think about them as what their impact will be, you cannot possibly understand what their income impact will be. And it's not what you should be thinking about. As Abraham Lincoln is saying, what you should do is what you think you should do. Just that. Yeah. You just do what you think you should do. The consequences are not in your hands. 
You can't save the world as far as you know. Actually, you might, but that's not something that you can calculate for. You just do what you think you should do, and the world takes care of the rest of it. I've had that experience a few times of doing fruitlessly, I thought, what I thought I should do, and seeing the ripples spread out from it on a phenomenal scale. They sometimes do. Well, it brought me and all these listeners to you. Well, that's that's a great thing, and thank you very much. It was you who brought the listeners. And uh, I hope it's um, helpful. I hope so, too. To everything. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been a joy. Thanks a lot. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.